The following is a message by Dr. Michael Horton from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this recording or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at westcal.edu or call 760-480-8474. Today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our joy and glory. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So far the reading of God's word. In this section uh, of Paul's uh, letter to the Thessalonians, I think we see uh, what we might call an ecclesiology on the run. (laughs) It's one of those places where Paul unfolds his ecclesiology, not simply in a doxological context, as he does in Ephesians especially, uh, not only in a more doctrinal uh, context, but uh, in a deeply pastoral, practical way. This is practical theology, pastoral theology, where Paul unpacks the ecclesiology that he articulates elsewhere in very vital terms here. And it's very convenient for us this morning, at least for me, that uh, he, he uh, uh, can be studied, at least in this section of Thessalonians, in terms of three categories that all begin with P, so we can have a happy pastoral alliteration. Persecution participation, and parousia. These are all categories that are near and dear to Paul's heart when he is dealing with the doctrine of the church, but they come especially to the fore in this passage I have just read. First of all, persecution, the context, as you've already heard, for this epistle uh, is given greater uh, grounding in Acts 17, where we have the story there of Uh, Paul, having been uh, part of the agitation in Thessalonica that eventually led to uh, a riot, Uh, Jason, one of the members of the Thessalonian church, was uh, to give a pledge in the form of a payment, a bond, to the city that uh, the church would would, uh, uh, keep quiet. Not quite sure exactly whether Paul was was prohibited from coming back to Thessalonica for that reason. All we're told is that Satan kept him from returning. Uh, Although Paul's mission in the area had been in the synagogues, 
the synagogues eventually shut him out and became part of the agitation. But the word spread to the Gentiles, and it is that nucleus that became the church here to which Paul addresses this epistle, along with Timothy and Silas. In uh, chapter 3, verse 1, which we've just read, Paul even was willing to be bereft of his companion Timothy, to be left alone, as Paul puts it, in Athens, a very foreign and strange city, especially to a Jewish rabbi, uh, full of idols, and Paul was willing to be bereft of his company in order to look after the Thessalonians by sending Timothy to bring back word. So probably writing from Corinth as Paul is rejoined by Timothy to hear of the state of the church in Thessalonica, Paul responds to the good report. It's not that Paul was preoccupied, too many irons in the fire, distracted by his other work. Uh, but he says here, because Satan had hindered him. Paul even uh, underscores in this uh, uh, section on uh, persecution the fact that trials really go with the territory. Trials are to be expected. Now this isn't always what we're prepared for in ministry today. We're prepared for success. You know, we have, uh, if we have the right plans, if we have the right demographics, if we get everything together, then we should have success. The, the facts should speak for themselves. Paul, on the other hand, had catechized the Thessalonians in suffering. He had prepared them for his suffering as well as their own. Because they were in Christ and Paul was in Christ, and they were united to Christ together, they would be united with Christ in his suffering as well as eventually in his glory. Yet we too are bound up with Paul and with Timothy and with the Thessalonians because we are bound up with Christ together, sharing also in his suffering, anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Uh, Luther said it takes three things to be a theologian, and every Christian should, be, should aspire to be a theologian. Takes three things oratio, meditatio, and tentatio prayer, study, and trials. Suffering is absolutely essential to bringing out whatever it is that we glean from prayer and study of God's Word. Suffering, Luther was right, makes the theologian. And Paul clearly had a theology of suffering that was very much a part of his ecclesiology. That leads to the second motif, I think, in this passage, a motif of participation, very clear on the heels of his uh, teaching about persecution, is his teaching about participation. And they're not unrelated themes. Again, it's because we participate in Christ, we are united with Christ, that we are united with Paul in his suffering. And so... Persecution goes with the territory because we participate in Christ and his cross. Paul uses several metaphors here to convey the depth of this participatory ecclesiology. First of all, he describes them as his children. Paul is, in verse 7 of chapter 2, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
or in verse 8, ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Or in verse 9, he calls them our labor and toil, much like children, our labor and toil. For you know how, switching the metaphor now to the father, you know how like a father with his children we exhorted and encouraged and charged you. And so the, 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 the parental imagery highlights the participation that the Thessalonians have in Paul and the participation that Paul has in the life of the Thessalonians. But he also underscores a broader participation. The largely Gentile Thessalonian church, Paul says, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, suffering the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So Paul is saying you became imitators. You became participants in the suffering of the Jewish church just as the Jewish church is suffering at the hands of its leaders, the Gentile church is suffering at the hands of its own. So not only is Paul's life bound up with theirs and theirs with Paul, since he and Timothy gave birth to them in the gospel, the Thessalonians' life is bound up with that of the Judean churches. You see, there's good news and bad news about this participatory ecclesiology, this koinonia or communion ecclesiology. Paul says in Ephesians that the, the dividing wall has been torn down so that those who were separated are now united. That's good news, but it's also bad news in a sense. It means that we're also united in suffering. It is a, a, a participation in suffering that brings us together in the body of Christ. There also Paul's reward. Paul and his cohorts were, as Paul expresses it, torn away from you. Very vivid, graphic language. Torn away. It wasn't that Paul was delaying his visit to Thessalonica. He was torn away from his people for a short time, verse 17. Nevertheless, they are his joy or crown before the last judgment. They are a victor's wreath around his neck. Verse 18. For Paul, the question of rewards on the last day is not a question about personal achievements. It's not a question about how many jewels Paul will have in his crown. Paul says here that the Thessalonian church itself is his glory wreath, his victor's crown. Is it not you, he asks, for you are our glory and our joy. He also refers to them as his beloved flock. Paul is, is torn away from this flock for a time by Satan. And there is an urgent passion about his reunion with them. He says, we could bear it no more. That's why he sent Timothy. Could bear it no more, verse 1 of chapter 3. Or verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Not only does Timothy's report bring comfort in a sort of generic sense, the apostle exclaims, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord, verse 8. 
For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. There's the koinonia, the communion. Paul's own joy, Paul's very life is dependent on the status of this church, whether or not it is standing in the Lord and in his gospel. The apostles, no more than the rest of us, were Stoics. They knew, of course, that the Great Commission would go on despite setbacks. They knew that it was not ultimately up to them, but that it was up to God and His grace. They knew all of that, but their zeal could wax and wane with the steadfastness of the churches they planted in the gospel of Christ. And that's what happens when ministry is a calling and not a job. Furthermore, the ministers, like Timothy, are participants with God. Not only participants with Paul in his suffering, as well as in his joy. Not only participants with Paul in Paul's reward on the last day. Not only participants with the Jewish churches being uh, tempted and tried by Satan. But also the ministers themselves are participants in God's work. Co-workers with God in the gospel. Isn't that a marvelous definition of the ministry? It's precisely because of this organic ecclesiology that Paul can even consider Timothy God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. You find the same thought in 1 Corinthians 3.9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul lays the apostolic foundation. That's Paul's job. That's the extraordinary ministry of the apostles, to lay the foundation. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid by the apostles. But Timothy comes along to build on that foundation. Ministers are co-workers with God in the gospel of Christ. And it's in the gospel of Christ, in bringing that gospel not in the substance of the gospel itself. Ministers uh, do not mediate the grace of God in their person. They dispense the grace of God through the gospel, through proclamation and word and sacrament. In other words, they're ministers of salvation, not masters. Conveyors of the means of grace, not means of grace themselves. They don't dispense God's grace in their own person. Uh, as if they had an indelible grace that the rest of the body of Christ lacks. Rather, in their ministry of word and sacrament, their work really is God at work. They are ambassadors bringing that word that is in fact not merely the word of men, but the word of God. And that's how they received it. For you received this not as the word of men, but as it is indeed the word of God at work among you. If they're not personally elevated above their peers, ministers are nevertheless given a distinct office. And it's interesting that, that even in the Nestle Alain uh, translation here uh, of the Greek text, they have servants. They translate it servants. Uh, you find that in, in other translations. I'm glad that the ESV does it right here. Uh, by translating it, co-workers with God. It's a very robust, bold 
thing to do, but that's actually what you find in the Greek text. There are plenty of places where you find diakonos. Certainly ministers are servants of the Lord, but synergon tu theu is what you find here in this passage, from which we get synergism. Co-working. Ministers are co-workers with God in the gospel. What a marvelous calling we have as co-workers with God. Not just Paul's co-worker, that would be that would be a grand enough office in itself. As Timothy's, we would all be, in this era of ordinary ministry, co-workers with Paul. That would be a very high calling. But we're, we're co-workers with God. We share with Paul a different office, not apostles, but we share with Paul in that ministry of being co-workers with God. That co-working with God even began in the salutation, didn't it? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. They were putting on, placing on the Thessalonians God's very own grace and peace by their preaching. Paul's strong ecclesiology here, as it comes out in practice, reveals his sense that the individual believer united to Christ is simultaneously united to his whole body and that motivates his own pastoral, deeply emotive response to the Thessalonian crisis. The Thessalonians are his own children, limbs of his own body, the reward of his own apostleship. They're his glory, his joy, and his crown. And to be torn apart from them is akin to the mothers who are victims of Katrina having their children torn away from them and not knowing their whereabouts. Paul didn't leave these children uh, in a mall while he was busy shopping. Paul didn't abandon them. Paul wasn't worried for his own life. He didn't look after these children of his, uh, of his family. Paul was torn away from, from, from them for a time. This wasn't a detached concern for mere doctrinal purity, worship, and church discipline. It was the love of a parent. It wasn't just concerned about you know, sitting around with the other pastors and saying, yeah, I have a really good church. We haven't had a church discipline case for a while. We've, uh, our numbers are growing. We're... You know, all kinds of things you could feel very happy about. Paul's concern goes deeper than that. Paul's concern for doctrinal purity, for moral purity, for the peace and purity of the church is the concern of a father for a parent, uh, for, a, for a child. In other words, Paul was a pastor. Pastors are, are tempted to be a lot of things today, other than shepherds. But Paul was a pastor. Finally, parousia. Persecution, participation, and parousia. Paul's eschatological focus drove his ecclesiology and his uh, ministry, not only among the Thessalonians, but everywhere in his epistles. In verse 19 of chapter 2, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? At his coming. He always had that 
out in front of him. It's, it's a, I think six times in this epistle, the parousia comes into play. The coming of the Lord is so strong and striking in this epistle. It's that eschatological hope, that, that future orientation that drives Paul even through all of his persecution. Because even now he participates in the age to come through this gospel. The focus repeatedly is on their blamelessness at the coming of Christ with all his saints, as he will mention again in verse 13. So the river of Paul's parental concern is fed by his eschatology and ecclesiology, which converge in the gospel of God's Son. Like a good parent, Paul is brimming over with excitement, with enthusiasm about a good report from Timothy concerning this church. Whatever corrections and exhortations that will come, and they do come later in the epistle, we'll hear about them. Whatever exhortations come, whatever concerns Paul has that this church get itself together and mature in the body of Christ, he builds on this triumphant indicative of what God has already done in his faithfulness for his people. And here he imitates the great shepherd's model who in his, his letters to the churches, uh, his words to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, first begins with uh, encouragement and then with correction. Paul does the same throughout his epistles. We don't have the time to go into it here, but you know, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, uh, he, what, a, what a, a troubled church that was. Who would want to be the pastor of the church of Corinth? And uh, you know, filled, filled with schism, all the stuff we just uh, sang about, by heresies distressed, immorality, a, a cesspool, really, a very difficult church. Who would want to go into that church to try to correct it? And yet Paul addresses them as saints. And therefore, when Paul talks about the parousia and holds that out to them, he's not holding it over them as something to dread. He's holding it before them as a hope that already belongs to them because they are steadfast in the gospel. It's something that they should joyfully anticipate since he is convinced that this will be a marvelous day, not only for them, but for him. This will be a banner day for Paul himself as he receives his reward by seeing them robed in the righteousness of Christ on the last day. Not only will they be his glory, Paul says, but you are, he tells them. You are now my glory and my joy. Their steadfastness in the gospel was not simply a lingering memory tarnished by worry and doubt and hand-wringing but a living reality in that sizable colony of the Roman Empire. Even in the absence of the apostle, the word was at work. And that leads to a couple of applications that we can make for ourselves this morning. All ministers of the gospel hold the same office as Timothy. With the, the death of the apostles and the extraordinary ministry, the, the foundation-laying ministry, has now been uh, uh, given the the, the uh, uh, ministry that comes with building on the foundation laid by the apostles. We're still doing that. We're still building on that foundation which 
has been laid by the apostles. Yet Timothy here is called not only Paul's co-worker, but God's, and that's exactly what we are. We are God's co-workers. Timothy's mission was to strengthen them in the gospel that they had already received. We saw that in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. That's exactly our calling today, to confirm and strengthen the people of God in the gospel that they have received. What a difference it would make in our ministry if we thought of the people God had entrusted to our care, not as our debt, but as our reward. Not as the noose, but the glory wreath around our neck. And not as a cause for anxiety and worry and distress, but of joy in the presence of the king who comes for his royal bride. Paul had to have wondered why God allowed Satan to keep him from this flock, to be torn away from the children of his own family. We don't know exactly why, what the, the, the precise historical circumstances were that kept Paul from returning to Thessalonica, but in this case, maybe we have some sense why God allowed it. It's one thing to obey in the presence of an apostle. It's quite another thing to obey and believe in his absence. Is the word powerful enough? That word that Paul had said in the previous chapter is not the word of man, but the word of God at work in us. Is that word itself sufficient to the task? Or do we have to have apostles around? And the good news, brothers and sisters, for us today is that this test case proved positive. Even in the absence of an apostle, the word was at work. It wasn't merely the Thessalonians who were on trial here, but the word itself. And that's good news for all of us. It is not merely the word of men, but the word of God, and it is at work in believers, in all believers. Whoever God's co-workers were in Thessalonica, during Paul's absence, names long since forgotten to the church, they could only confess with Paul and Timothy in the words of Martin Luther when asked to explain the Reformation. The Word did all the work. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Dr. Michael Horton from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this recording or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at westcal.edu, or call 760-480-8474.